stand out from the crowd by gaining the right experience. The next step in your cybersecurity journey starts with Cybrary. Sign up for the Insider Pro or Teams product to learn and develop skills and reach your goals. Protecting data wherever it lives is at the forefront of the long debated question, is your data secure? The apps you use, the websites you visit, the Zoom calls you're on. There is so much information that is available, but who makes the decisions about data handling and security? On this episode of the Cyberry Podcast, Jonathan and Mike welcome Patrick Walsh, CEO of IronCore Labs, to discuss transparent data encryption, data access and privacy, security in depth, and how companies today are facing these challenges. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Cyberry Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mike Gruen, the VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberry, as well as Patrick Walsh from IronCore Labs. Um, let's do a couple of quick introductions real quick. I'm Jonathan Myers. Um, I'm the Principal Infrastructure Engineer here at Cyberry, so I handle all the uh, cloud infrastructure and securing and protecting and maintaining all of those systems. Mike? Yep, Mike Gruen, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cyberry, uh, responsible for all the technology and security and, and overseeing uh, the platform and software development. Awesome. And Patrick, welcome to the podcast. No worries. Yeah, I'm Patrick Walsh. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. I'm the CEO of IronCore Labs, and we'll get into what we do uh, there later. And my background is uh, I've spent a lot of time, long time in security, building things like intrusion prevention and uh, antivirus and web filtering. And... Uh, and encryption software, which is to a large extent what IronCore does today. Let's see where to start encryption. We always we always have this fun back and forth where we start to kind of troll our guests on how government backdoors are the best thing possible for everybody's security and there's no flaws in that logic. So I'm interested in your take on because I think I think with this new administration coming back and a certain other things changing, um, we might start to see the bills about government backdoor encryption kind of starting to make its rounds again. And I'm curious to where you stand on the matter. Oh, we'll definitely see the bills. There's no question about that. It's just a question of how far do they go. But yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously I think the problem with a lot of what's happening in the world today is that people aren't securing their data, right? You know, you get into the network why don't why don't we make the assumption that people are already in the network? Why don't we secure the data? And we don't do that in part because there's this entire fight against securing data that's happening. And and it's like, you know, to, to solve one problem, we're we're screwing ourselves on another. So no, I don't think it's the right thing to do at all to have backdoors, nor to nor to even like the idea that end-to-end encryption or any other kind of encryption is in somehow inherently bad or enabling of criminal behavior, to me is looking at it entirely the wrong way. And um, you know, at IronCore, we we have a product line. We call it the data control platform, specifically for enabling end-to-end encryption. Um, but when we when we started down this path, this is an area that we got asked a lot about a lot, and that we actually thought about a lot, right? Because we don't want to be in the position of building software that is that's used by people to to do bad things. Um, and our our way around that is actually to focus on businesses and and to, to say that you know the best way to secure individuals' data is actually to get the companies that hold all that data to secure it. And, and as much as you can do it, you know, use Signal, use all those things. But when you start talking about your financial data, your health data, everyone who has some profile on you because you did business with them once, you know, that data is getting stolen day after day after day after day. And you know, our focus is to, to secure all that data. 
first and foremost. And because in this scenario, the companies themselves are able to access the data sometimes, okay, it depends, there's zero trust models where they might not be able to, but um, let's say in many cases, the companies themselves can access the data. Well, that means that there is a place for law enforcement to go. And if they can't, they have customers who can access the data and there's a place for law enforcement to go. And the idea that law enforcement ha should have this easiest path, this sort of like sneaky under the hoodie way to go, go see things without using subpoenas to the people who own the, the data is, I think it's a, it's a bad place to start in the first place, just uh, on, on general principle. So, and that makes sense from a business perspective. I think we all, I, I, I think we're gonna agree a lot. Um, but then you you know on this sort of individual end-to-end -end encryption and on the me just talking to Jonathan or whatever off you know in some non-business capacity, I think is where government thinks that that's where they really need um, these backdoors more than in order to do law enforcement. I think we've talked about it right. any number of times like, about. But yeah, I'm curious. I mean, Apple Apple is in a way different position than I am, right? It's a uh, they could do so much more. They know they could. There are people within Apple who want to do more to protect customers. But this tension that they have is something that has to that they have to weigh with every decision they make on products, right? And so, um, you know, I feel for them honestly. Like I think they should bias towards strong security. But I also get that they're not taking it as far as they could for for very specific reasons. And uh, um, and I, I and I feel for them. Now, the problem is that that debate, the, the debate about, for example, phones, has poisoned the entire concept of using this type of technology in all the other places too. Okay, and so I I wish I wish we could have some nuance and say, you know, how secure is the phone? It is is an important discussion and. That shouldn't be simplified and, and encryption is bad <laughs> or backdoors are needed, which is a terrible idea and general principle. So speaking of your question. End, end, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> speaking of end-to-end -end encryption, I'm curious on your thoughts on I think Zoom was slapped with a huge fine for uh misleading people on the whole idea of like end-to-end -end encryption. And I'm from the like mindset of like, yeah, like it just depends on which end you're talking about, but like it's a video conferencing software, like it's, it's got to go somewhere. And so I'm curious on your thoughts on how like that whole thing kind of shaked out. Well, they, they needed, they needed the slap down and the slap down was not as, as, as great as you might think it was actually the, the, they pledged to do things they had already done. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't right. that great. Uh, it's sort of disappointing. They, they had been told multiple times by some people, including someone you might have talked to met recently, that, that what they were doing was not end-to-end -end encryption. Okay, what they were doing is terminating HTTPS and then um, and then you know basically decrypting and then re-encrypting and sending it back out. And it's extremely misleading, in my opinion, to call that end-to-end -end because end-to-end suggests zero trust. It suggests that the vendor doesn't have access to your data. And that's a really strong point. You know, and, and it's interesting because like, um, so I think they were right to get shamed for that publicly and for the FTC to investigate it. And I think the FTC probably should have done a, you know, I, I feel like the FTC let them off the hook a fair bit. Um, but, uh, but that's just me. But, you know, the good news is that they are, that, you know, that spurred them to do it for real. And they, they, they brought in heavy hitters, man. They brought in people that we admire a, a, a good deal 
to come in and help them solve this problem. They bought an encryption company. They, um, they put some real attention into it. Um, now I did a whole webinar on what I think they did got wrong with it. <laughs> so, you know, if you're curious about that, they, they've made some choices that mean a lot fewer people will use it, I think. And that, that is too bad. It's, it's the type of thing where they could have aimed to make it be the default. And it's not just not making it the default, but it's things like having no mechanism for doing cloud recordings, uh, and stuff like that, that makes it so that, um, you know, having no mechanism to connect in people from the telephone who don't have a zoom client available, stuff like that. Like, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what they do. I mean, they have to start somewhere, but, uh, yeah. they also like, it's, it's like one tenth the number of people that they can support on an end to end encrypted, uh, zoom than they can on a non end end encrypted. And that's due to choices they made that are, um, computationally like, uh, uh challenging. So. Yeah. yeah, I I think, and I think since they run their own data centers, like I think it's also an interesting problem because like their scale issues are not, their scale is issues that like we all like had back in the like early 2000s with like, oh, I need to buy more hardware. And I think them getting thrust into the spotlight and then just their free tier just rocketing, I think is a, yeah. it was an interesting like compounding problem where it's like, it's no longer you know, let's do the right thing. I think like business then took over because it was like, we need to get on this. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, if you think about it, like their ability to absorb that many new customers and that, that kind of growth and at the same time produce new features like end to encryption, like give those guys credit. They, they deliver a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, not just the individuals, right? There's individuals, all of a sudden every school defaulted to Zoom, like, or maybe not every school, but tons of schools. And then you have all kinds of other scale problems that come from that. It was pretty overnight. They had to deal with a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we ever had like an issue or an outage once that hit for us. The only thing I remember was like support tickets took like six months to get answered. Um, <laughs> well, and, that I, was and I think our... And and Zoom phones, which had just been released, we were having some pro- we were having a lot of problems with that. But I think it was because from a resourcing perspective, it probably wasn't their high priority. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like a brand new product they launched last October. <laughs> right. It was like right. It was yeah, maybe thirty days in. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I think it's. Um, I mean, I think there's. End-to-end encryption is one thing. And then uh, I am curious sort of what else you guys are into. What else does uh, does your company do? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're targeted at developers. And so we're specifically trying to help people who are building applications who hold sensitive data, whether it's just personal information about folks or it's health or financial or whatever, deal with that data in a way that keeps it safe. And and so um, it's a little different than your average. We're, we're not selling to the, to the CISO. Um, you know, Mike, we'd love to sell to you, but probably not. Although I, you said VP engineering and CISO, so you actually might be perfect for us. But yeah. the, uh, <laughs> you know, but typically not, right? Because we we are selling to people who are who are building stuff and who understand that they need to design with privacy in mind now. And um, and so we have two main product lines. One we call the data control platform, and that one that one's cryptographic access controls. So it can be built to be zero trust and end to end like we talked about, but it doesn't have to be end to end. What you do is you have every single user, every system in the, in the um, environment has their own public and private key pair. Mm-hmm. And you can basically determine who gets to decrypt what independently. 
So it's like, ah, here's a piece of data and, and it's, it's, it's a piece of PII that's highly sensitive. Okay, now I'm gonna independently determine whose keys can unlock that. And that's all cryptographically backed. So it's super cool and it can be used for all types of systems. It's, it also takes a lot more thinking to build with that, right? It's a little different paradigm than most people are used to in terms of how that stuff works. And so mm-hmm. it has its own barriers to adoption for some people. Now, not for everyone. I, it's actually quite easy to use, but you have to you have to mentally understand everywhere you access the data, you have to have permissions to access it. Right? The other product we do is we call it uh, SaaS Shield. And SaaS Shield is specifically for, as you might guess, SaaS companies who, um, uh, and specifically, usually companies who are catering to businesses. Mm-hmm. So if you're a SaaS company who sells to a uh, enterprise, especially, you probably have to offer some s- very specific security features like single sign-on. And the thing that we've noticed in the market is that lots and lots of bigger companies, especially, and regulated companies have been asking for something called customer-managed keys. And the idea is that you encrypt each tenant, each each of the SaaS customer's data with a separate key, and that the the customer gets to control of that key in some way, shape, or form. They get to, maybe they get to upload it, or maybe they actually hold it in their own key management server and it calls out to them. And the advantage of this for them is that they, they get all this extra insight into how their data is used because they get a audit trails when their data is unlocked and they get the ability to revoke access to their data if someone shows up in the news the next day, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that transparency is huge. Uh, I think is, 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 is sort of one of the, I think it, it isn't often talked about as the headline when we talk about encryption, but in this specific case with customer managed keys, it is the headline, right? You get to see how your data is being accessed. You get to know whether or not someone in your cloud provider is peeking at your data or not. And, and probably knowing, knowing that changes the behavior all by itself, right? And or so, whether or not law enforcement has a subpoena that's uh, subpoenaed your SaaS provider to unlock the, your data <laughs> and is not looking. Yeah, well, so... Or maybe they don't unlock it. So I can tell right. you that Salesforce, for example, offers offers platform encryption, and and it's a customer managed key offering where uh, you can actually hold your own keys if you elect to. And um, at their case, when they get subpoenaed for data, customers who have platform encryption turned on, they deliver the encrypted data. They're just basically dumping the database, and it's opaque <laughs> encryption on those fields, right? And in order for them to produce data that would be decrypted there would have to be a government that could compel them to change their software to go make a way for them to scrape the database in a decrypted form, which they don't. And right. so that's, um, you they know, don't currently depend, have. like there's an asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Based on people I've talked to who work there today, it is strong subpoena protection. You know, I can't be sure that that hasn't changed since I last talked to someone, but you know, it's, it's pretty decent, even though it's server-side encryption. So going back to your um, your data control thing, I'm curious because you talked about who your like ideal customer or whatever. I'm curious on how that works because you're basically selling to a developer that's like has to make that decision, right? Like, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the market because based on what I've seen, I don't know if I have met a developer that would think of that thing like first as he's building something as opposed to just going and saying, we'll fix it later where I feel like your solution later on is just infinitely more complex to kind of bolt on, if you will. Yeah. You know, you're, you're right. Yeah. I wish I could say you weren't, 
the um, the folks who want that the that this kind of data control the most are the largest enterprises with the most legacy applications that in many cases they have no idea what all is even touching the data and there's a fear factor to starting to change that um, you know I would argue that if you don't know what's touching your data maybe the first thing you should do is lock it up and figure out what breaks but right. but that's not um, necessarily yeah we, we've learned a lot we actually started with the data control platform we still use it it's actually uh, underlies our our SAS Shield product as well. And so, um, you know, these things are interrelated. Um, but the fact is, it is easier to use it to adopt. You can adopt it if you're not building something new. It is certainly, you, you definitely can. Uh, but it's easier to adopt when you're when you're building something new. Uh, so that's, that is the better place. And it's most often larger companies, although that's been changing. Actually, a lot has been changing. You know, with Zoom doing end-to-end -end encryption, with Ring announcing they'll have end-to-end -end encryption by the end of the year, uh, we've seen a bunch of interest out of the video conferencing industry and and others as well. It's it's picking up. And this is what's interesting to me, you know, um, for, for all the things that COVID has brought us that aren't so good, one thing that it has brought us that's maybe, from my perspective, good for multiple reasons is, is a increased scrutiny of security for a remote for, for a remote workforce and that leads to stronger privacy and to, to thinking about things like end, end encryption like how do if we're going if we're going to use these cloud providers how do we really trust them and if we have this if we're using a ton of cloud providers as most companies are how do we make sure that all the data that we have that's scattered across all these things isn't at risk and you know this is the it's like the cloud supply chain Right. If you're thinking about your supply chain attacks and you think about the cloud aspect of it, it's it's just, you know, what do you do? How do you make sure that that's good? And you can you can extract all kinds of promises all day and you can listen to as many trust me speeches and, and have as many like cloud security alliance spreadsheets filled out as you want. But you don't really know if people are lying. You don't really know if they're looking at your data. Right. It, none of that counts for much. It's a lot of paperwork. And so, so these kinds of like customer managed keys, end-to-end -end encryption, um, you know, it's been interesting to watch it develop because we, we kind of got into the market a bit early and it's, it's developing fast around us. So would you say, I mean, going back to like who sort of is your customer, is it someone who's more the VP of engineering type who's responsible for overall software development, understands, who's probably not the one who's going to be doing the actual implementation, but understands the importance of all the security aspects and, and the rest of it? Is that... We see architects and VP engineering are probably our primary two starting personas, mm -hmm. um, but probably architects a little bit more. So, you know, you get the people who are responsible for deciding how you're going to build something are interesting and what or the people who are most interested in what tools are available. And they're probably the people who are keeping an eye on all the requirements coming out of things like GDPR and like the implications of the consumer, you know, California Consumer Privacy Act and stuff. Like that stuff is, um, I mean, if you're paying attention, it should have you frightened. Right. <laughs> CCPA, did you know, like CCPA has a thing called a private right of action. It's like the smallest little piece of it. The vast majority of that is all about transparency and making sure that, you know, if you're going to share the data with someone, you have to tell, you have to like disclose that, right? That's the tons and tons of language about that. And then they have this little bit that says, oh, and by the way, if you get breached, anyone affected can sue you, even if they're, they don't have damages. Right. And that's, that's the thing. That is the thing that is going to change everything. We haven't seen a big lawsuit yet. We haven't had a big breach since it went into effect this summer, but, um, like it, it, so that's only Equifax, because you can't sue the. That's only because you can't sue the government. 
<laughs> that's true. Well, we'll see solar winds, solar winds. There's going to be a thing that's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like, but, but yeah. So like take Equifax, if Equifax had been breached since this summer, okay. They, they, at the end, after their breach, when all was said and done, they said they paid $1.4 billion total across fine, across everything they spent to deal with that breach. Okay. To put that in perspective, when they were breached, they had 4 billion in the bank. So that basically cost them 20, you know, a little more than 25% of what was maybe 30% of what was in the bank. Um, if CCPA had been in effect and just affected 50% of California adults sued, it would have been a minimum of 1.7 billion in fines from California and as much as 14 billion. Right? right. Shit. That's, that's potentially company ending. That's right. that's like a whole other level. So I, which I, does you know, which we, does bring back to like sorry to interrupt you, but that brings back to like please. a conversation we've had in the past about I, I think we were talking about cybersecurity insurance and like this whole notion of you know there's a point at which you, if you have a large enough marketing budget you can just survive anything. Like Equifax, pretty much. I mean Target companies like that that get these breaches they can sort of get past it because people will, you just put out enough marketing material and people will just learn to trust you. Zoom probably falls in the same category. Um, and so I think it will definitely change that dynamic because now the, the, um, the, the breach will cost that much more. It's not just the, the lost revenue and the, what, the marketing dollars to get past that plus whatever the damages were, it's now right. the damages are going to far outweigh the rest of it. It's just, we, we just, the scale is way different than it was before. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear whether or not cyber insurance would even be able to pay these fines. So in California, they have another law that says that if there's a, that, that you can't use insurance to pay for uh, statutory fines. So the question is, does this, this is meant to punish for bad behavior. Does it fall into that or not? hasn't been tried. I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone knows, but, but it's entirely possible that not only would insurance companies not want to pay it, but they might, it might not be legal for them to pay it on your behalf. Right. Interesting. That would be interesting. I was not, I was not yeah. aware of that point. That's frightening. Yeah. Uh, easy question. <laughs> Do you think somebody could just put in their terms and services of agreement that like, if you're located in the state of California, you're waiving all right to yeah, you can't. I don't think you can wave away. I mean, that's interesting. The way, waving away your right to uh, um, a class action suit. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, yeah, I would, that would think be not because again, it's meant to punish for bad behavior. But that would be interesting if you could. No, I yeah, think I the mean, only otherwise... thing you'd be able to put in there is that like California residents aren't allowed to use your service. <laughs> like you're not. Allowed yeah, to that's what I'm saying. Is like <laughs> that would be. I think after the first major breach, that a lot of companies, as they're catching up, are just like, "Cool, if you're in California, your platform is now locked, right?" And I think that's becoming less and less of a thing because, right, like so many people used to live in California, but now you know, COVID and everything, <laughs> people are leaving. So now it's like, oh, it's like we're blocking Montana. It's like, oh, less than a million people, yeah, blocked. You know, like. I think that that'd be interesting because I mean, a lot of people did that for GDPR when it first came out. They were just like, cool. Like nobody in Europe thinks, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah I mean, no, if I'm a US based company, right. I just won't bother allowing people from the, you know, from the EU in. But that doesn't really scale. <laughs> I mean, that's a difficult solution. You know, people have mostly figured out how to pay over GDPR, I think. But mm-hmm. the, the fines have been ticking up. And so it'll be interesting to see how that 
develops and how it changes behavior. Because at the end of the day, you know, no one is requiring specific measures. No one's saying you have to encrypt that data. Or, well, to the extent that that's that's happening, it's it's mostly often like Hippo Land or something. And and even then, you know, encrypting the data doesn't mean access controlling the data so much exactly. And and almost all of these laws are just written from a do something to protect it. And if you don't, you can be fine. If if you don't, whatever you did wasn't sufficient, you can be fined. And as they ratchet up these kinds of fines, you know. I hope like the point of them doing that is to try and drive new behavior. And I think it's maybe one of the only ways to drive that new behavior and to, to drive people to say, well, maybe we better like figure out how to lock up the data meaningfully or or the sensitive data. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I think that we've talked about that a few times. Like, yeah, there's, there's really only, that's really the only thing that's going to drive a business to, I mean, a a business doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a conscience. It's a business, right? Like, (laughs) That's what's at the end of the day. It's the stockholders. It's the revenue. It's the rest of it. It's the drives business decisions. Um, even the most well-meaning of companies, you know, or whatever. Um, and there was something you said um, about I can't remember what it was. Um, GDPR fines. Well, anyway, I'll leave it there because I can't think of my thought. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, so, right. but who edit, decides? Edit. Right? Like who decides? if a company did a reasonable effort, right? Because like, you look at the SolarWinds breach, like the technical people that are like reading these things are like, well, I mean, that's a pretty sophisticated attack. Like, I mean, it's, it would have taken a lot to have stopped that, I think, unless we find out that they did get in because the password was like password one, two, three, which I don't think was the case. And even if a person did get in with password one, two, three, like it still required a lever of technical expertise to like bake this thing into a signed binary that got distributed right. and things like that. And so who gets to yeah. make that decision that, you know, in California, that SolarWinds did a reasonable job of securing their things. And a then jury of their SolarWinds. Peers. <laughs> a jury of their well, peers. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, it depends, right? Because for the private right of action, it 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 is a, it is a court case with a, um, uh, it, you know, ah, damn it. Sorry. Where's let me, let me start that over. I was getting a phone call and then it launched applications. Yeah. In California. So there's two things, right? Because there's the, the privacy penalties, which I don't know. I don't think they would apply to solar winds, but let's pretend for a second that solar winds coughed up a bunch of data as part of this. And well, what about their customers? If they did, that would be the AG. What about their customers data? That were no customers that were using solar winds that, effectively like Microsoft office, you know, got breached. And so that has customer data. Yeah. I, the funny thing is that with the solar winds, it's mostly business to business and these laws about personal information, it doesn't really play in on this. So I, I actually think solar winds will dodge a fair bit of that. I mean, I think they'll get, they may well get lawsuits. They will certainly get lawsuits. Um, you know, I, but I don't think it'll be coming under like CCPA, for example, I think it'll be uh, total other things. You know, supply chain attacks to me, the thing is, we talk about how sophisticated it was, but they've been around forever. It's not the first time we've seen an update server be poisoned and and not by a long shot. I mean, heck, if you're a developer and you're pulling JavaScript libraries, it seems like it's happening a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's it's actually kind of scary because... Because in some cases, if people pull open source software and other things, you know, you can't you can't use software today that isn't somewhere using some open source thing that no one really actually knows who's maintaining that or who's sliding in things. And so there's a lot of ways for this type of attack to work. And 
you, you know, you can't meaningfully audit all the code all the time. There's no way anyone's doing that. And so we have a, we have a pretty serious problem. Um, it, it's, yeah. Cause it, didn't the, uh, they examined the solar winds code that got like inserted and it's like most people wouldn't have caught that. Right. Like it was a arbitrary thing that like, if once it's written in there, if nobody touches that file, you know, a lot of the time scanners won't pick it up and things like that. And then it's, it's so arbitrary looking that, you know, it was made to avoid scans and it's, and it's right. an ongoing battle. And, and especially that, yeah. Apple, Apple's SSL library was weakened, right. By a single line change in code that was really hard to spot. Right. And, and we have, uh, um, we've had similar things happen with Juniper and their VPN stuff. And, you know, if it's done well, it's done cleverly. Even if people are watching the code, it can, it can sneak on by. Um, and I, don't, I don't know what to protect, what to do. I, I wish I had a better solution. I mean, I think, I think, you know, from our perspective, make sure that you protect your data across the board through your supply chain, through your cloud apps, get it protected and in house, right? Because someone's going to get into your network because this is one, this is one vector but I don't care. Like, or maybe they hold a gun to someone's head and say, log me in. You know, I, it, there's always a way into the network. <laughs> right. So, so why don't you figure out what's going to happen once someone's in and focus on that part of the problem? Cause it drives me nuts. Cause we're going to get a ton of money. that's going to go into, you know, securing update servers or something. And, and we're going to be, we're, we're constantly chasing and reacting to that last thing instead of saying, what would be the proactive thing to do here? How do we make it so that them getting in, like, doesn't have that, that, I mean, I'm just preaching security in depth, I know, but, but no one goes past the level of, Hey, maybe I'll secure, I'll secure the network. Okay. No, I'm going to, I'm going to shrink my perimeter. I'm going to secure my servers. Okay, cool. But what about you know the next level from there? The next level from there is is the data, and and we just don't see it. We see transparent encryption everywhere. Cool. If someone's going to steal your hard drive, you're protected, and you should do that. But but it's not actually stopping access to the data if someone gets into your running server. So, to me, this is why we started this thing. It's because we had this. You know, I was working, I was working at Oracle. We get these questions all the time from folks about who can actually access my data and how are they accessing it. And we're like, well, there's about a million ways to get access to that data. And, you know, of course, Oracle's very good about auditing that and doing all kinds of things. I'm not throwing them under the bus here, but but it's a hard problem. And we haven't, uh, you know, our goal is to solve it at at the lowest level so that there isn't any question. Yeah, and let's be honest, how many Oracle DBAs are still around anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but I, I think it's it's a very difficult problem, right? Like, especially, I would say it's startups, right? Because I would argue the easiest place to fix it is right when you start. But the problem is startups, the people they're hiring at the moment, that security person, like an infrastructure person, anybody like that is not a first 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 maybe hire. And so you're hiring like an engineer that's full stack that does everything. Yeah. And you basically have to assume he's got the foresight to do all of these things. And chances are, if you found that person, he's not going to work for you for equity. And so I think it's, and then it's, it's a very challenging problem to like bolt it on after the fact. I would say, especially with all the different departments that want access to the data early on, because now everything's data driven. So you have marketing that wants all the stats, even though they don't know what to do with it. It's just, you know, I want all the data. And then you got salespeople that want all the data and it starts going everywhere. And then it's, anytime you try to implement something, 
you're going to break that flow. And yeah. that's, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you can do that in a lot of organizations where they're like, oh yeah, we'll totally go down for a week and not have any information and just stop selling the product. And I think in, that's the problem because then you're trying to think about, well, cool, well, how do I duel this as we're starting to, you know, do this or like roll it out or like, let's get to that line in the sand where we can roll it out overnight. And those don't happen. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's our pathway, right? We built the hard stuff. Now we have to find ways to slot it in so that it's, it's as, um, you know, we minimize disruption as much as possible so that it is more possible to bring in, you know, and that's what we're, we're working on is things like that that make it much more turnkey. It don't require necessarily a development project or take on the risk of, of things. You know, to your point about startups, I mean, a lot of startups are started by smart people who are smart enough to know and they want and, and want privacy. But we did find early on, we went out and we did a bunch of meetups and other stuff. And we'd say, okay, here's, you know, we, we're going to tell you about some of the cool stuff we're doing that uh, you can add to your product from day one to make sure that, you know, you are going to be able to protect that data. But not only that, but you're going to be able to sell to the largest of large enterprises because they're going to have assurance that their data is safe. And, and we'd say end-to-end encryption and no one, we had like, you know, be like one or two or three and 25 people in a room would have any idea what we were talking about. I mean, they all thought they did. They'd say, oh yeah, we do that. You do? HTTPS and, and disk encryption, right? No, nope, right. that's not it. And so, um, you know, it's not taught in school, <laughs> clearly. You know, it's, it's, uh, this is stuff where some people are clued in, but it's the minority. And, and so, you know, I, I think the ultimate thing is that to make the major ecosystem tools easy to use so that you're just choosing the thing that has a reputation for being secure and then you're not worrying about the rest of it a whole lot. And so then when you're choosing your database or you're choosing your whatever, you're making, you're making a choice probably largely on reputation because the minority of people have vetted it, you know, and, and that's, that's where it has to get to. And then, then you need to get to, to a point where, you know, people really are saying like, now are you using MySQL or are you using like encrypted XYZ or whatever, right? And, and, and we start making these kinds of distinctions in the buying process and then, then the whole thing tips over. It's not a, uh, it, it's interesting. We're seeing, like I said, uh, we've had a huge pickup interest. There's a lot of stuff happening, especially in the CMK stuff, but even also on the end-to-end stuff. Uh, there's a lot of smaller companies that feel like they need to be zero trust because they're dealing in data and they don't want to be responsible for what could happen to it. And so, I, I mean, I think this is, um, uh, the, the picture is changing. It's not quite as bleak as, as you make it out to be, but like our starting point is pretty much exactly what you said. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting because Jonathan, like right, as Jonathan was speaking, I'm thinking about myself, right? Like, first of all, Jonathan was definitely within the first 20 some odd hires. I was, uh, he was the, he was my second hire, arguably my first uh, after I got here. Um, and yeah, I know before I got here, things were different. Uh, and then I got here and we, we started looking at how we do things and how we operate and adopting a better trust model and so on and so forth. Um, and I do think, like, as you said, Patrick, one of the things that drives me is, hey, we're as a small company, we can either hire a ton of people to, to manage and deal with all this stuff, or we can build things in secure ways that minimize our risk um, let's use technology and leverage that to, I can't believe I just said leverage. Let's use technology uh, to 
like to our benefit and not have to deal with the the these problems down the road get it in earlier and i think that the same is true for secure whatever we're doing it's always like when i think about software developers it's if we right. want to add security in it's just how do we add it in in such a way that as a software engineer myself how would i want to interact with this thing as just a software engineer without having to just make it easy for me just have it work like every other part of my ci cd that i'm already accustomed to using just plug it into that and we'll you know and and you know if we want to get to right uh like cell level encryption um and where every single individual has their own ability to decrypt and encrypt and read certain things then yeah we need a database that just supports that in a very like seamless way as a developer, right? I, I can't take the time to learn all of these intricacies and nuances of right. all these APIs. I'm probably going to screw it up, um, frankly. I mean, even, you know, it, it's just hard. So the, the easier you make it, the, the more turnkey you make it, the better off it is. And I think you'll see, we'll see a lot of adoption. Yeah, I agree, I agree with all, all that you said. And I also, it's like when, when developers start to build stuff, right? They try and take the, at least architects will will start with all the itties, right? The the reliability, the scalability, and the, often way ahead of when they need to actually really worry about scalability or even reliability. But but like all that stuff is considered upfront. That the security frequently isn't though, because the developer mindset is that's the job of ops or DevOps or someone. And so like that's you know, if there's one thing I can wave the magic wand and just change, it'll be that because it's like, damn it. If this code's not secure, I don't care what those guys do. They're screwed. Everyone, you're all screwed. And and so, you know, security ought to be right up there with all those other idiots right from the get-go. And if it's not, I think anyone who's, you, you could talk about security development life cycles and, and stuff, which you should absolutely do, but totally insufficient towards towards security by design. And And if you're not starting there, you're you're gonna you're gonna be so screwed later, <laughs> right? I mean, it's 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 the same as it's like anything, right? If you don't if you start off not really thinking about scalability or extensibility, any of these other any of the other ones, right? Later on, you're gonna pay the price when it comes time to to scale up. Like you're gonna be as a business, you know, you might be at that point where, um, all right, cool, we have our X number of customers and we're ready to scale up our sales team. Let's go hit this hard. And then you start adding all those additional users, businesses, whatever it is, and your infrastructure is just crumbling under the weight because it never was it, it you can't scale the business because you can't scale the architecture. And and it's true for for um security as well. You need to start. I think there's a lot of people, um, and maybe I'm spoiled because of the circles that I run in. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel that way. Um, I think it's getting better. I think there, it's, there's more security by design and, and by default um, up front. Um, I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah, but I would yeah. also say that at least, I think we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but a lot of the problems is if we're kind of doing more advanced things and we're selling it to larger enterprises, the problem is trying to convey that to the larger enterprise, right? Like they're just, they just want to know if your data is encrypted at rest and in transit and that is it. And it's like, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's, it's, I think trying to get that going. Um, like one of the examples I used is like, they require an intrusion detection system. And it's, it's like, well, yeah, that's great if you're running a traditional network with traditional things and you don't have all of these different services talking to these things, 
um, like the next gen of thing probably shouldn't be called an intrusion detection system. And so how do you answer that question where it's like, if you say no, it's an automatic red flag and they're like, cool, now we're going to go into a deeper review of your infrastructure. Right. And it's, it slows down the sales process. And then, so you have other people getting involved and it, you know, rips you out of your day to day trying to get the architecture, architecture up to the next level of security and things like that. And I think that's, that's a big problem that we kind of face is, is dealing with vendors that are, I don't want to say too far behind. They're just, they have different priorities, I guess, at the moment. Well, right. I would actually say our some of our problems are that, especially when you're dealing with larger organizations, there's so many layers at that the people who are able to make the decisions about the purchasing decisions need these boxes to be checked. But frequently, as soon as you get on the call with like an act, the actual security team or whoever's really in charge, and you start talking and you say, this is what we do, they're all like, oh yeah, no, no worries. But like if for the larger organization, it's almost impossible for us to get that call. Or when, you know, or it takes so long before we do. Um, and that's that deeper dive. And I think, you know, I agree. I think that there's, we have to do better about how we decide what is and isn't secure and how do organizations sort of, we're, we're building this whole supply chain of trust and it's, it works both like the most likely place for you to get breached is not you. It's your, somebody who's in your, in your supply chain. So, right. um, so I don't know how we address that. I think it's another big problem that's going to be almost impossible. And, and I'm of two minds about this because I I hate that slows down in the in the sales process. I think there ought to be a fast forward to that. And it's always it's like these questions are binary, but you have these complex systems. So your HTTPS question, even it's like, well, from A to B and B to C, yeah, but C to D isn't. And you know, like, I mean, what, is that a yes or a no? It's probably a yes and, because that's what and that gets do. very difficult to like explain, especially when you're talking about cloud services, because you accept risk where I don't need TLS necessarily because it's on the same host and it's talking over an actual physical Unix socket. It's like, yeah, but like, it's technically not, you know, and it's, it's, right. it's hard to kind of describe that. But, but, but the flip side of this is if we didn't do that, no one would do any security. <laughs> right? Exactly. So it's like, so, so, the purpose is right. Everything, you know, the, the, the idea is right. It's just, it's just hard. And, and I've seen like three or four startups that, that haven't made it, who've tried to address this specific problem from this perspective of making it easier to validate supply chain. Um, and the, the idea being like, we'll do that, we'll validate, we'll give a stamp or, or some variations on that, right? And it always has a, some promise, but... Um, Somehow it's not quite right. Like I, I feel like um, there ought to be better ways. So, so for example, in code, you know, in 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 writing software code, you can write unit tests. You can write unit tests in different ways. Okay, and and you can create. Um, if you're doing really cool things, you can have it automatically generating inputs. And so you're testing across a whole variety of inputs. And so then now you're basically auto fuzzing yourself as part of your your unit tests. And right, there's these different kind of levels you can hit on this this stuff. I, I feel like something, stuff like that being built in could give a lot more insurance. And, and we don't have, there's too many things, right? There's too many databases and backends that someone could be using and too many different types of middleware, too many different programming languages, right? The, the, the landscape is so complex. It's hard to imagine something like that that just universally works, unfortunately. But if you narrow it and you start thinking, well, what if we just, you know, you get really narrow 
then it becomes much easier to see like, ha, if you built it this way, I have a lot of confidence, right? We build a lot of our software in a, in a language called Rust. And, and Rust is interesting. So you're the ones. We're <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we put Sorry. on that bandwidth bag in a little while though. But, uh, but you know, Rust, especially if you're comparing it to something like C, it's like, it's such a no-brainer because it's correct by design. And in that kind of correct by design, I wish we could bring to, to bring it to security and software in a better, better than we have. So, I mean, I think getting back to the startups that are trying to solve that problem and what their, some, some of the struggles are, I, I mean, the, the first one comes to mind is it's point in time, right? You come and talk to us. We show you everything. Uh, we practice continuous delivery. Like, and that's one of the things that I, Jonathan, I think find frustrating a little bit with some of these uh, questionnaires. It's like, yeah, this is true today, but like probably in a week or two, some of this stuff might change or we might decide that we want to move from this cloud to that cloud. And like, what does that mean for all of the documentation that we signed and said that we did two years ago? Do we need to go back to you and tell you like, oh, by the way, our architecture has completely changed. And so there's these sort of point in time um, or... Uh, and so you can sort of say like, well, we vetted the security team, we vetted their their processes, their people, their personnel, and so uh, people and personnel are the same. Uh, but we've sort of validated all of that, and we feel pretty comfortable with this company knows what they're doing, and so on and so forth. But what happens when those people start leaving or turning over? And we're definitely not going to advertise when that happens. So I think that there's to your point of yeah, doing this sort of vetting of the companies and and offloading your trust to someone else is going to be difficult, and then. How do you sort of automate this? How do you come up with the right tools to decide or determine what's really going on? It's going to be a challenge. I mean, is suck too is filling in that gap a lot. I don't know that it should. In fact, I'm not not a huge fan of suck too. Um, but like that has annual audits, and and we're seeing increasingly that enterprises don't do deals, especially with smaller companies, unless there's a suck two in place. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and you know, suck two is interesting because it's 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 you know, the accounting organization that does it. And it's, and it shows because it's all about process. Do you have a rule about this? And and did you follow your own rule is what they're doing. And so, uh, uh, and, and a lot of it has to do, it's, it's things like, are you doing annual reviews of your people as well as security stuff? It's a, it's a mixture of all kinds of things. Um, kind of a, almost a benchmark of maturity, but also a benchmark of pain thresholds for dealing with all that crap. Yeah, SOC 2 reminds me a lot of like, so I went through CMMI level, I don't know, three or whatever, a bunch of years ago. And I remember that whole process and being like, so that's well and good. Like we went through all this, we achieved this thing. And all it basically says is we have a process, we follow that process and we're continuously improving our process. It doesn't even validate the process itself. So our process could have just as easily been when we find a bug, we flip a coin, and if it's heads, we fix it, and if it's tails, we don't. Okay, cool. You document your process, you're following your process, and you're constantly reviewing that process to see whether or not it's effective. Uh, we're happy with that process. We fif- we fix about fifty percent of our bugs. Like, <laughs> it's just I mean, not, well, that's it's just it's not, not the same, the same thing. thing, right? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It seems very very similar. Like no one's validating the process. That's just validating that you have a process. Yeah, we had um had an interesting podcast with uh, Cindy Gula. And she's advocating uh, Rungula's wife, and they they have a, the Tenable Ventures, uh, things like that. I think they just started a nonprofit or something, if I don't remember. Anyways, uh, she kind of started raising this idea uh, around like data care 
So think of it as like correlated with like the medical profession. You have like degrees in like medical care and this is kind of like data care. So like as you get certified in handling different levels of data and like protecting all that stuff, you get like a PhD that certifies like, yes, you understand the regulations, you understand how to secure it, all of those types of things. I wonder if something like that could go to show like, oh, we have like four data PhD people on staff that kind of, you know, they're certified through an independent body, but like we're kind of, you know, and it's more of like, okay, I kind of trust, like, right, because we kind of trust doctors. Like we do reviews on doctors now, but like before it was like, oh, he's got a, you know, he went to medical school. He's a doctor. He's, he passed the medical board and all that kind of stuff. You just assume everything he's doing is correct. And I think, I wonder if like we get to that point where you kind of get certified through independent boards that like, you know what you're doing with regards to like data privacy and security, that that kind of gets rid of a lot of this like process thing per se. I I wish, you know, we don't hold any personal information personally for us. In fact, we don't hold data at all for people, but initially we did, but any data that was, we held was encrypted and we never had the keys. Right. Mm -hmm. So we thought we could dodge all this stuff easy. Um, And we haven't been able to. And in the fact that we're we're experts in this area, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I've worked in companies where, you know, we know what the right thing is to do, but we don't necessarily have the business will to do it. And I think that happens with security a lot, right? It's it's like feature or security. And and that's what's hard. And that's why we have to, I think, make it less of a less of a trade-off. You know, ultimately that's the only way to break through. You know, we, we need people who are willing to go to the mats and fight for for doing it the right way. And then and then as the tools get better, that will be less of a fight. Well, right. And I think, though, that the the business for security, as the fines or whatever, the, the consequences for not doing security continue to ramp up, that's what drives business. And it gets back. I think it's all that that same that same thing. Um, it's it's sort of it's all exactly. interrelated. Yeah. Right. It has to we have to change the equation so that it, it becomes something that's less optional. Right. And the other option, by the way, other than just huge fines, is if there's more transparency and people actually chose based if, if there was better education and people actually like ask good questions, like is this is this really a service I want to use? I understand how they use my data. I understand how they secure it, and I recognize that that's like such a pipe dream because nobody's gonna. It's it's just not a realistic solution. But hopefully, for on the B two B side, we can sort of get to that point a little bit where some of these things happen, you know, where we're, um, I mean, yeah. this is our entire premise is that people can tell you all the great things they're doing, but you can't really be sure that they're really doing it or that they'll be doing it tomorrow or anything else. Right. And right. so, so our, our premise is like, this is all a lot of process approach to it that, that leads, you know, efficiency out of every company it touches on both sides of the deal. And, and what if instead we had technical measures you know, customer managed keys. Like, dude, you get a full audit trail for every access to your data. You can you can shut it off. It's it's uh, you know, end end encryption. Company can't even see it. Zero trust setup. Okay, they do things client side, right? It's Google versus versus Apple. Apple does facial recognition, so does Google, but Google does it on their servers, and Apple does it on my phone. And it and it's like, um, you know, <laughs> people. Not many people are making the Apple choices today. But that, I don't understand why not. 
<laughs> you know? I mean, it's also difficult, right? Because we're talking encryption. And so processing power on an end device is widely varied across the spectrum. And so especially with like Chromebooks, Pixel books and things like that. And these zero client, well, zero clients are different, but like that type of thing, I think doing that encryption on that end device gets very difficult and it it starts to limit your customers. I would push back against that a little bit. I mean, if you're talking about an IoT device, maybe depending on what we're talking about. But but um the fact of the matter is that, you know, we have all these different layers of encryption. Even when we're talking about public key cryptography, all the public key cryptography is doing today in most cases is unlocking a symmetric key, okay? It's the outer layer and envelope encryption. Almost almost everywhere you look, the, the innermost thing that's actually doing the encryption and decryption of the data is probably AES, probably AES-256, okay? And AES-256 is fast. It's not even our fastest. Like is, we have way better, but it's just not ubiquitous. And it's, it's hardware accelerated across all the major chip lines. So... You know the power it takes, the the both um, the CPU cycles it takes, et cetera, are, are are minuscule. They're not noticeable, and it's why it's why you can run. It's if you remember in the '90s, if you ever like used used something to encrypt your whole hard disk in the '90s, your whole system was like stupidly slow. And now you encrypt your whole system, and and there's like no noticeable difference between an encrypted drive or an unencrypted drive, right? It's because we've we've actually that problem is a solved problem now, and. And the key management aspect can be slower. Public key cryptography is slower than like AES, for example, if that's what you're doing to manage the key and who has access. Or, and there's lots of other techniques for how we get the keys. Maybe you have to go across a network. Maybe that slows things down. But once you get the key and you're going to actually encrypt and decrypt, the overhead is like microsecond stuff. Okay, not, you know, it, it's just minuscule. So I, I don't, I, um, I don't think performance is a barrier to encryption. I think usability of the data is something of a barrier in some cases. It doesn't have to be if you can if you can process it client side. There's lots of technologies that actually work really well with encryption. If you're doing big data, for example, it's not that hard to put something in your pipeline that decrypts it as it streams off a disk, and you load a partition of data into your, into memory. Um, you know, and and then when we talk about things like uh, you know, are we doing column level? Are we doing row level? Are we doing field level? You know it gets into how often do you have to um, fetch a new key or unlock a, a key kind of questions. But even that can be pretty, you know, it, that can add up if you're doing it over and over and over again. So it really depends on the architecture, right? It gets, it gets into weird places, but in many cases that's doable. And so, and then on the usability, we have all these great new things. You know, we're, we're working on an encrypted search product that's going to make it so that, Hey, everything stays encrypted and you can search across it. Um, making the, the data way more usable. There's a bunch of stuff like this, not just us doing it, that are really interesting. Lots of really interesting techniques to make data more usable, to be able to do math on the data without decrypting it first and stuff like this. And and even like Intel SGX, right, where you have these secure enclaves where in theory, if there's malware running on the computer, it still doesn't get access to the data that you're you're unlocking inside there and, and processing. There's a lot of there's a lot of tools now at our disposal you know, I think the number one problem is that most of those tools are too low level for most developers. And so, um, you know, the question is, is there, is there room for startups to come in here and do it? And will people pay for it if it's easier? Or would they rather use some free open source stuff? And there's actually no business model unless 
you know, a bunch of people get together and just collaboratively try and build it, which is a really bad idea when it comes to encryption. (laughs) But, you know, maybe. When I'm selecting tools, one of the drivers, unfortunately, is some level, whether it's familiarity or comfort, whether it's my own internal team or what other vendor. So if we're selling to someone and we tell them we're using some random database that they've never heard of, that's a red flag, right? If we tell them we're using Postgres, they're like, yeah, cool. And I remember that because back in the day when uh, in 90, whatever, when we were looking for um, databases that supported a type four uh, Java, you know, driver, uh, JDBC driver, and we, our only choice was this German database called Yard, uh, yet another relational database, right? That was the, that was the first one that su- had a type four driver. Um, yeah, we had some trouble <laughs> trying to sell that and trying to maintain it and, and so on and so forth. So, I think that it's just, you got to get that, like there's those early adopters and you got to get to that point where there people do have trust in that technology. They understand what it is. And I think, um, yeah, I think I'm hoping, I think we'll get there very quickly. I think it's not like it used to be. I think things iterate so much faster. Um, I think back, you know, of all of the different data stores that have come out in the last few years and how quickly adoption has happened for them. So I, I, I feel pretty good that we'll get there if somebody comes out with the right product. Yeah, that's our hope too, is uh, um, not just us, but everyone who's kind of fighting the similar battle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? definitely. It's, 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 uh, we, need, we need to have speedier adoption and people willing to see a risk benefit here where the risk is you have a startup that's lesser known, you know, you're, you're being an earlier adopter in something, but the benefit is um, you're building it right and you're exactly. building it. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great place to wrap it. I appreciate you uh, coming on and talking to us. Um, once again, you want to say the name of your company? Yeah, Iron Core Labs. Check us out. We have, uh, especially if you're a developer, you're interested in building things in a secure way, or you make a SaaS product and you want to actually charge a premium for for security to your customers. So you can actually make money off of CMK. Uh, uh, Salesforce, for example, charges 30% of net. That means $130 instead of 100 bucks for people who turn this on. Um, it's a way. It's a way to actually add security to your product and make money off of it and open up new verticals, right? So um, that's of interest. Check us out and give us a call. Awesome. Well, thank you. And Jonathan, so it's a pleasure. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.